This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show. You can listen to Politics Without the Boring Bits Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. Coming up on today's episode, a really fascinating, sort of mind-expanding conversation about faith, about faith in politics. And at a time when, you know, faith and the conflicts between faith are being played out in the worst possible ways. Really, really interesting conversation coming up with, amongst others, Edward Stoughton, the BBC journalist who spent a lot of time thinking about this and writing about it in new books. That's coming up in just a moment. Before that, as we always do, it's time for these two. The Columnists with Libby Rachie, Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester on Times Radio. And we say a very good morning to Rachel Sylvester. Hello, Rachel. Hi, Matt. And a very good morning to Libby, uh, Libby Purvis, not Libby Rachie. Good morning. Good morning, Libby. How are you? Uh, I've got a cough. I shall cough sometimes, but it's all right. I'm not ill. No, very good. Very good. Now, um, we wanted to talk about the protest we saw at the weekend and... The question of going to a protest, even if you have good intentions, but you know that there will be some people there with bad intentions. So, you know, last week at the weekend, there were people who wanted to show solidarity with Palestine. But clearly there were then people, as was possibly inevitable, people who wanted to glorify Hamas uh, and, and chant things about Israel and Israelis, which you as a good intention person... Wouldn't. So what's the right way to approach a protest, do you think, Rachel? Well, I think you have to have the... Uh, you have to encourage peaceful protests because otherwise protests will get taken over by the extremists. But what always seems to happen is the extremists turn up and gate crash. Uh, and that happens with every issue. Yeah. But it's particularly toxic with this, this issue, I think, because there is a kind of morphing from pro-Palestinian to anti-Israeli, to anti-Semitic, which is really toxic. Um, But I think you can't say don't go to a protest just because some people you don't agree with who aren't very nice will be there because then that's handing the space of protest to the people who are the bad people. Yeah, yeah. What do you think, Libby? 
Oh, I suppose you could only solve it by taking your own placard with a modest line like support Palestine politically condemn Hamas violence, but that would probably just get you kicked. Um, it, it seemed to me uh, that a lot of those people on the streets were there because it was a sunny weekend and they wanted to let off steam in a general way against the world, the government, the Home Secretary, everything. Um, and I think a lot would then find themselves close up to some really seriously unpleasant anti-Semitic uh, pro-Hamas campaigners. Uh, I think the more important thing is that individuals like the various students and academics who have publicly and online glorified Hamas and said that they rejoice, they should be prosecuted. They just should. You know, if it was ISIS, they would. And I think, uh, I think there's no, no space for timidity about some of the glorification of Hamas, which we've seen the last few days. Yeah, there's a problem to buy a column uh, today in the Times by uh, Tomawa Walade, who said he, he uh, was walking down Regent Street on Saturday and saw these arguments on show and said that the Palestinian people bear the misfortune of having the worst advocates in the world. And I suppose that's, that's the other thing, isn't it? If you're in Gaza right now, facing whatever is coming from Israel... Um, there are, you know, human beings, putting aside the politics, human beings can simultaneously, you'd hope, feel terrible about what happened to Israeli people last weekend at the hands of uh, Hamas terrorists, but also feel for the people in Gaza and the situation that they're in. Yeah. And that shouldn't be a controversial opinion to take. But if you do try to afford that view... It seems to me you get attacked often from extreme, you know, in every debate there are extreme views from both sides. That you need to be taking a hard line, but you need to pick a side. Yeah, I, I just think the the civilians should be separated from the military, you know. So yeah. not every Palestinian is a Hamas supporter any more than not every Israeli is a Netanyahu supporter and fan. Um, some of the things that Netanyahu has done in the past, lots of... Israelis disagree with and similarly lots of Palestinians fundamentally disagree with the terrorism of Hamas. Um, so I had a message last week, I sent a message, I be, was in Israel um, visiting the hospitals for the health commission so I sent a message to one of the young women I met there, you know she just said everyone here knows someone who's either been killed or taken hostage, her boyfriend's family had one of the hostage is in the family you know and there's you just have that huge sense of just the appalling human tragedy but equally now you look at those images from gaza and pregnant women children being carried in arms covered in blood um you know that is equally on a human level heartbreaking um libby i don't know if you saw it there was an interesting column in the sunday times i say from hadley freeman where she was questioning why so many people flew or displayed the Ukrainian flag after the Russian invasion of Ukraine last year. And she hadn't seen the same sort of outpouring of people displaying the Israeli flag as a result of the attack. And I, I, I sort of really thought about that because I thought actually everyone did, you know, did do those things last year. Is it because of the way that the flag is wrapped up in not just the people but also the government and the president's? And yes, I think that, that's it's a, that's a huge problem. I mean, also, I mean, it is not 
made as easy to get hold of an Israeli flag to put up. I, God, I would have wanted to do one at the weekend. Um, you would have done uh, as it as it is to get as it is to get a Ukrainian yeah. uh, a, a Ukrainian flag. I mean, it, it, in a way, you know, the, 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 I think Hadley was slightly wrong in the feeling that there wasn't, you know, there wasn't the feeling, there wasn't the, you know, defending defend the Jews feeling uh, that there had been about Ukraine. But on a personal level, there is absolutely massively. I mean, I've done a lot of, of personal personal things, personal messages, all the rest of it, to Jewish friends saying, look, you know, we stand with you, you know, this is terrible. Because the, the anti-Semitism, you know, the, the, the rise of anti-Semitic attacks in Britain now, I mean, that's massively important. But I don't, I, I don't know about the Israeli flags, whether, whether, I mean, yes, the Ukrainian ones have been on every, every corner, you know, every country lane has Ukrainian flags flying. Um, uh, but I, I don't know. I mean, if, if there was some something which didn't mean necessarily Israel, but f- meant all Jews, yeah. you know, a simple Star of David or something, you know, I'd, ha- I'd have one up full time right now. That's a, that's an interesting because there's something about there is a distinction, I suppose, between when people were flying the Ukrainian flag, it was for the people of Ukraine, but also supporting President Zelensky because he was a, you know, the the president who you know and people were supporting him in his fight with Russia, and I think it is possible to simultaneously want to show solidarity with. Israelis, people, and Jews around the world, without supporting every political and military action that Benjamin Netanyahu has taken and is likely to take. Yeah, I think. Yeah, that's... I mean, it needs separating somehow. Yeah. But the moment you start to separate it, you you get, as as Rachel said, it sort of bleeds right over, um, you know, right over to the other side. It's it's hideous. I think there's also a, a point um, on Hadley's column that she's writing about a sort of particular bit of liberal North London left-wing intelligentsia, if you like. And I think there's a tendency among some on the left, which you saw most acutely with Jeremy Corbyn and some of those among his supporters, where that anti-capitalist, anti-Israeli really does morph into anti-Semitism. Yeah. Now, Jeremy Corbyn would say he's not anti-Semitic, but you look at some of the things he's tweeted, some of the things he's endorsed, talking about Hamas are his friends. Um, that So I think in that sort of slightly North London chattering class bit, perhaps that's what Hadley's referring to, there's a kind of unease about Israel, which is completely wrong. And if you are... Somebody, somebody did a, a wonderful piece of text, uh, which was up online saying, you know, uh, gay uh, liberals, you know, just gay liberals supporting Hamas, you know, just remember what Hamas would do to you if they had a chance. You know, women support, you know, gay women, uh, liberal women, just think what Hamas would do to you if they got a chance. You know, th- these are not your people. But they have become, they became a fashionable cause, as, as Rachel says, a fashionable uh, sort of North London liberal cause. And I could completely see from from Hadi's perspective and, you know, lots of my Jewish friends who are really feeling it, you know, if you're having to tell your child not to take, you know, to wear their blazer to school. Um, we've seen, you know, anti-Semitic uh, graffiti and so on. And then walking down the street and still seeing the Ukrainian flag and not the Israeli flag and feeling that you're not being supported. I, could, I also could totally understand that. Let's move on because I think that we will, of course, no doubt, uh, return to this issue uh, again, but I want to speak about um, your column today, uh, Libby, looking at the the long term impact of the closure of schools. And it was interesting because uh, of the comments made by the former Children's Commissioner Anne Longfield. She was at the COVID inquiry last week and being questioned whether the government uh, during the pandemic took the issues facing young people seriously enough. Let's just take a listen to that. My um, understanding was what I saw was that 
on occasions, governments seem to understand what being vulnerable was um, in some of these um, situations, but that it didn't often fall, follow through in terms of the policy and the practice and the, the implementation of what that meant. Um, and Libby, you sort of drew a, a line alongside that to what you know, straight across to Simon Case, the head of the Civil Service Cabinet Secretary, and all the WhatsApps that emerged of him saying they didn't really have a grip on it. It was like a terrible, tragic joke. I can't cope with this. Um, and you, you, you spelling out again in graphic detail just how how badly schools and young people were treated during that whole period. It was, it was, I mean, the, the two things just ran together in my head. The fact that this, that the first lockdown was kind of understandable and yeah, okay, maybe nobody knew what's happening, you know, but the, the chaos running up to the second lockdown, the chopping, the changing, the tears, the this, the that, the other, the Simon Case sense of, of number 10 just being rats in a sack and nobody knowing what to do and no proper leadership. And during all this time, and in fact before, during the summer when the restaurants opened, um, you know, the school stayed closed and nobody was thinking about schools nobody was thinking about children at any stage in all of this and it just seemed to me that we really owe them you know as the nation which accidentally elected a really poor government um, and then tolerated the the complete neglect of of children's education during this time we kind of owe them you know resource has to be put now into helping these children out of the situation we have a massive population of what they call ghost children uh, you know who are just never or hardly ever in school and I think we lost the habit you know the sense of yes school is the normal place for children to be I think parents kind of some in some areas lost that and it has hit the most disadvantaged children really hard you know comfortable middle-class people with gardens and children with their own <laughs> laptops who did a bit of extra home education because they didn't have to commute because they were working from home you know never mind that you know, a massive, massive families, you know, often key worker families, yeah. you know, where the children were were left helpless, you know, maybe one mobile phone to try and do remote learning between three kids. You know, it, it's been atrocious. And you, you came across all this when you were doing the Education Commission as well, Rachel. Yeah, and the, the long-term consequences of this are enormous. So the latest figures from the Education Policy Institute, which analyses that disadvantage gap between wealthier and poorer children, is two years the persistent disadvantaged are behind their wealthier peers at 16 and a year at the end of primary school. Um, and that gap, which was narrowing slightly, has now widened. It's now the worst since 2012. Uh, so we've really gone backwards. And I spoke to head teachers for the Education Commission who were having children, you know, one, one head teacher, half her reception class was still in nappies, you know, children unable to speak, say their own name, still drinking from baby bottles, parents really unable to cope during the pandemic. Um, and I think one of the most appalling decisions by the government, actually, when Rishi Sunak was chancellor, was to turn down the request by the government's own education catch-up czar, Ken Kevin Collins, for a serious injection of money to make sure we didn't end up in the situation we're at. And that is on Rishi Sunak, I'm afraid to say. Yeah, but we'll see uh, uh, as this unfolds in the uh, the inquiries to what could be done about it, because as Libby also points out in her column that the the sort of breaking of the of the the pact between parents and children in schools and how you you know it made it clear that it was okay not to go to school and it was very difficult to try and uh, 
try and get them back. Let's step away from some of the uh, the meteor uh, g- topics we've been discussing uh, and talk about how a political party, which started as a joke in 2015, is now third in the polls ahead of Vienna's state election. It's the Beer Party in Aust- Austria. Marco Pogo is the leader of the party and joins me now. Hi, Marco. Hi, nice to meet you. <laughs> Great to have you with us. So tell us about the Beer Party. How did it come about? Uh, and how did you go from from a bit of a joke to being third in the polls? Um, the Beer Party started in uh, 2015. I'm a musician and I wrote a song called The Beer Party. And uh, in this song, I describe how I think everything would be pretty, would work out pretty well in Austria if the Beer Party would be in charge. Um, and out of this joke, basically, or out of this song, I thought about uh, making an entry in the register of political parties in Austria. And uh, surprisingly, it was not that hard. Um, and later on, we decided to, to uh, participate in elections. And what are your, what are your and, policies? Uh, yeah, we, uh, at first, we just had our... Yeah. We got some serious beer policies, of course. Yeah, um, We want a beer fountain on basically every corner in Vienna. We want no tax on beers. We want a free barrel of beer per household a month. We want a ban of Radler, for example, for, of Shandy um, and other atrocities. Um, and we also want a Radler, Radler or Shandy uh, buyback buy uh, buy program, yeah, to get it out right, exchanging Radler for real beers. These are our beer politics, um, and that's how it started, actually. But Ma- there are some more serious points as well. We'll come to the serious points, Marco. Is there not a danger if you have a free barrel of beer for every family, beer fans on every street... Would the good people of Vienna not be drunk the whole time? Um, I think they are drunk, uh, beside the fact if the beer party is in charge or not. <laughs> not uh, <laughs> j- just a joke. Um, uh, we participated in, in regional elections in Vienna in 2020, and we got 11 seats in the district parliaments. And at this point, I thought it would be uh, uh, senseless to just make make a joke out of it and i wanted to make some serious stuff uh, as well and uh, we brought in more than 500 requests in the regional parliament concerning for example cultural funding uh inclusion uh social aspects for example the free submission of products for menstruation uh of course many requests in traffic and so on and so on and i thought it would be um yeah totally senseless just to make a, a joke out of it so are you on board, Rachel? Are you, are you ready to support the beer party? Well, I want to know, Marco, whether you've actually managed to get any beer fountains with your local government representation. Um, actually, this was uh, one of my um, e-promises to the people, um, ma- making the first uh, beer fountain in Vienna. And uh, I tried it on a political way. I made some requests in the regional parliaments and um, none of that worked out. And so I designed my own beer fountain it's a portable beer fountain um and we had a huge party in, in vienna and um this was the first time that, that my portable beer fountain was uh, in use it was it, it was a great event and important for me i kept my promise <laughs> it's not usual for politics to, to keep promises but uh, I, I made this promise and so uh, i had to keep it so is the beer fountain free is it like a water fountain yeah. that anyone could just walk up? Well, how do you stop children using it? 
Uh, we check the age, of course. Oh, okay. ID check. What? Right. So you have a policeman standing by all the time? <laughs> I had security standing by, and uh, I'm a medical doctor as well, so it's important wow. for me to, yeah, uh, to have an an eye on on this. And do you, do you limit the amount of beer an individual can drink from it? Um. Well, I think everyone is responsible for himself uh, or herself. Uh, I did not limit it. It was just a one-day event. Yeah, uh, it, it's not. It, it's not temporarily standing there. It was just, uh, okay. it was just one, one day. Mm. Libby, Libby, so, you you on board with this? Well, I always rather fond of the, the the crazy parties. Ever since Screaming Lord Such said, "Why is there only one Monopolies Commission?" You know, and, and, <laughs> uh, it went deep to my political heart. This worry, but no, it, it's interesting. I I have read more about the uh, beer party, and uh, I that one of their big things is to try and stamp out people who like a rather sort of fruity, uh, less serious beer. Um, you know, and they want to remove human rights from people uh, involved in that beer, as far as I could make out. Basically, you know, they 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 they, they were very much yeah. against it. So it's a bit it's a bit divisive, to be honest. You know, I mean, if, if they would let in the kind of fruit beer and Lucasade people, um, then, then I board. would feel more benign well, towards. How do you feel about that? But bar, they don't then? they don't have the quality that Screaming Lord Such used to have. I'm afraid the, the British are better at mad parties um, than the Austrians. Um, well, um, I, I got to be honest. From time to time, I drink Radler as well. Um, <laughs> what? My idea was you, you drink to... it, but you but you, you hate it. <laughs> <laughs> That's against your policy. That's like in... this is going to be huge in the Austrian news if uh, I uh, say that I drank Radler once. No, just uh, just a joke. Um, I thought about I need uh, every party needs a common en enemy. And the enemy for the beer party is, of mm. course, uh, beer mixing, uh, uh, mixed beers, uh, because every party uh, needs uh, needs enemies to, to mobilize the, the community. Um, I stand for Shandy. I stand for Shandy. <laughs> I you're defy gonna to, you. You're going to have to move to Vienna and mount your I, own, I'm, your own I'm party. I'm off to Vienna with, with some very adulterated beer to defy you, mate. Libby Perris and Rachel Sylvester there, and of course you can read them both in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. And just a reminder, if you're a student, you can get a student subscription for nine ninety nine for a year, for three years. So if you are a student or you know a student, $9.99 for a whole year. Just go to thetimes.co.uk and subscribe right now. Right, up next we talk about the politics of faith. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. 
You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. In the most recent census, fewer than half of people in England and Wales described themselves as Christian for the first time, with more than a third declaring no religion at all. Secularism rose by a quarter in the last decade, but despite this shift, nearly every Prime Minister of the country has been a practising Christian. In Rishi Sunak, Britain has its first Hindu Prime Minister. He spoke about his faith on a trip to the G20 in India earlier this year. I'm a proud Hindu and that's how I was raised, that's how I am. But it's, it's something that is important to me. I think faith is something that helps everybody who has faith in their lives, particularly when you have these stressful jobs like I do. Having faith to give you resilience, to give you strength is important and it provides an outlook on life which I find particularly valuable. Is Rishi Sunak right, though? Does faith still matter in politics? Edward Stoughton has presented the BBC's religious programme Sunday for more than a decade. And in his new book of the same name, he chronicles the role of religion in society over the last half century. And he joins me now. Good morning. Good, morning. Good to nice see to you. Um, the truth is that religion isn't at the centre of many people's lives anymore. But is, do you think it is still at the centre of our public life? I think two very interesting things have happened during the, the uh, period, the half century, the, the yeah. Sunday programme's been on the air. One, as you quite rightly say in your introduction, a, a complete collapse in, almost. I mean, I think you can call it that in traditional mainstream, particularly Church of England worship. It's an extraordinary fact that I looked in the archives a bit and in the 1960s, the entire staff of the religion department of the BBC were ordained clergymen of the Church of England. Wow. It's quite, and one, one of the first um, items we found in the archive was in 1974, uh, uh, statement speech given by the Archbishop of um, Canterbury, Donald Coggan, which provoked 28,000 letters to Lambeth Palace. People just don't react to our Christian leaders in the same way. But over the same period, I think there's been an enormous explosion of interest in religion in general, not necessarily Christianity, and not necessarily in faith, but curiosity about it, because of the dawning realisation that you can't understand the world, particularly not the world beyond these shores, and actually not our own society either, given that it's now such a richly diverse religious society. You can't understand it unless you take account of religion. And I think, tragically, what's happening in the Middle East at the moment is a good example where the religious dimension is there, and it's a real puzzle, and you need to know about about it. You and I think that's why, why people go on listening to our, our wonderful programme. It's interesting though, you talk about you know, something that the Archbishop of Canterbury said. Yeah. Does it, ca- it clearly doesn't carry the same weight no. as it once did. And yet, we do see you know, a comment by the Archbishop of Canterbury will end up on the front pages of the papers, despite the fact well, that not that many people... But we, we have an extraordinary religious settlement in yeah. this country, don't we? Which is largely um, the product of the lust of a, a past king and a kind of early 16th century version of Brexit, which saw us breaking away from yeah. the church and, um, and and forming ourselves as a nation slightly apart from Europe. And, and those things are still there. I mean, it, it, is, it is extraordinary. I'm not going to say whether it's good or bad, but is extraordinary that we're a country that still has bishops in its mm. legislative chamber. And when, you know, when we attack Iran as a theocracy and things, you suddenly think, you find yourself thinking, hang on. Um, so we, we, are, we are odd in this country. But I think that the most important thing to say is that we are odd in our secularity in many ways. And that while we in this northern corner of Europe think we're the norm, we ain't. For the vast majority of people on this planet, religion remains, for good or ill, and I'm not making a judgment yeah. on that, remains enormously important as a motivating factor. And when, over the years, you've been interviewing religious leaders, do they want to commit news to, to cause a stir? 
or or not. And actually, from your perspective <laughs> as an interviewer, that is quite frustrating if you're... Yeah, sometimes they'd rather avoid it. I mean, that's certainly been true during the really grim times of all the abuse scandals. I used to find sometimes actually going up to do a shift um, during the last decade of the first, sorry, the first decade of this millennium, when it was all coming out all the time, it was really quite painful. You had to deal with this every weekend. And those circumstances, you're right, they don't want to, they don't want to create news. But some um, do, and some of them want to say things which are a bit more than news in the conventional sense. Mm. You know, once or twice we've had Archbishop Desmond, the late Archbishop Desmond Tutu on. He, gosh, he wants, you know, he's a voice that you really want to listen to and hear. Um, I've also found myself, I'm afraid, reflecting quite often that a lot of church leaders are a bit like politicians and, <laughs> you know, just a, just a slippery to pin down. <laughs> I was going to ask you that because you've obviously done both. Yeah, yeah. Who do you find easier to interview, politicians or... I suppose or politicians are a bit... Well, politicians, you, you all know the game. And, yeah. and it, what's slightly difficult with church leaders sometimes is that they are pretending to speak with holiness... And actually, uh, being as political um, as, as a cabinet minister might be, and that's that is a bit trickier and rather disappointing in a way, because you'd hope they're a bit more inspirational. I suppose the other thing is, it's quite if, if you're a politician, then there is at least a party line, and you can challenge where they are yeah, on that. Yeah, yeah, line. yeah. Well, there's a party line in religion too. But I mean, but, but then even within religions, there could be quite a lot of active debate about what oh, yeah, that line might yeah. be and where they are. And, that's true, and yeah. that's the fun. I mean, yeah. that's a, that's you know, it's um, it's a bit like uh, you know the, the Labour Party conference in the old days with lots of divisions and so forth. Um, I um I wanted to ask you about uh, where that overlap is with politics and faith mm. because earlier this year I spoke to the former uh, Labour MP Frank Field, the MP for Birkenhead for forty years. He's now living with terminal cancer, and he talked about being a, an active member of the Church of England. But he f told me he felt he had to hide his religious beliefs despite them informing his politics. So let's just take a listen to what he said. Yes, I didn't go around kept saying that you know this was an extension of the kingdom, whereby I was genuine looking at ways of making the world a better place and therefore in some sense welcoming the kingdom i thought i'd look totally cranky if i did that so i just got on and kept to a secular language in achieving my objectives which were primarily religious ones one of the things i was trying to teach the labor party and to a large extent thank God it's learnt, is that we are of fallen nature and that we live to be redeemed, but we're not redeemed. And that if we forget that there's a dark side to what we get up to, then we can be misleading in the policies that we propose. For a long time, in the 70s, 80s and 90s, Labour was really peddling a belief that we were already home and dry, human nature, which didn't really have much part to play, whereas I emphasise that while we are fallen, we can be redeemed. Do you think he's right, Edward? He would have looked cranky to be an MP talking about religion. I think that's firstly a reminder of what a very impressive politician he he is. Um I, I know what he's driving at, and one of the strange things that always strikes me is that we live in a country where religion is enshrined in what we 
call our constitutional, though it's a bit messier than that, but we have the head of state is also the head of the national church. We have, as we were saying a moment or two ago, bishops in the House of Lords, and yet religion in terms of political debate is kind of neuralgic. People don't want to go there. And the contrast, of course, with the United States, which has a secular a constitution part, yeah, yeah. Where, where religion is, is a hugely big deal. I mean, it, it, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? At the moment, we have the Archbishop of Canterbury um, having attacked legislation which is put forward by a prime minister who, as you said, is a Hindu and by a home secretary who I think is a Buddhist. That's sort of weird. And it, it can happen, This is, this is the Rwanda policy. Yes, yes sorry, yeah, I was thinking the about recently, the, yeah, 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 the, yeah. the immigration policy. And, and, and in a way, I suppose that's... That's quite healthy. What it shows you is that, that religion isn't isn't part of the debate, yeah. and that does let things that gives a bit of freedom to politics to uh, to be pursued. But it's odd, and, and it is a symptom of the fact that you remember Tony Blair didn't convert to Catholicism yeah. until after he'd left Downing Street. Alistair Campbell uh, saying we don't do God exactly. Exactly. Down. Actually, he did. He did. But only after, well, he left did, but only after <laughs> a respectable. Interval. It's, it's not just Labour, though. We've got the, this group called the New Conservatives, a group of uh, Tory MPs, mostly elected in 2019, who have decided to you know, talk more about faith and the role of faith in their politics. This is the Tory MP Danny Kruger uh, speaking at the National Conservative Conference back in May. The normative family, held together by marriage, by mother and father sticking together for the sake of the children and the sake of their own parents and the sake of themselves, this is the only possible basis for a safe and successful society. And it's interesting that, that making that case, a sort of traditional Christian argument, you get actually he does get exactly what Frank Field talked about, is you get yeah. dismissed as being a bit cranky. Yeah, I think he probably does, and it's interesting to hear him make that case so eloquently and in a way that actually you don't hear the bishop say so yeah. often these days, do you? Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, think, I think, I mean, we, we just on the Sunday programme done an analysis of the way bishops vote. And actually, it turns out that the vast majority of the time they vote against the government. So it's, 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 there's an oddness in hearing a particular group of Tory MPs signing up to yeah, all that yeah. stuff. Well, the House of Bishops, the, the Lord Spiritual, as they yeah. call themselves, are actually a bit of a bunch of lefties, really. <laughs> and what about, do you have faith? I do, yes. I'm a, I was brought up a Christian, very um, a Catholic, rather than very, well, not rather, I mean, a, yeah. more specifically, a Catholic in a very traditional way. I was educated at um, a monastic school, Alperforth, uh, and although I, of course, like everyone else, my face, you know, gone up and down, and I'm not always good about going to church, as I should be, and I certainly don't, haven't been... Um, good in Catholic terms all my life. It's sort of part of me, it's sort of woven into who I am. And, and doing the programme and speaking yeah. to so many faith leaders and considering other faiths, yeah. has that strengthened or, or even weakened your own faith? Well, I, I think I think it's probably not a bad thing who doesn't to, to have someone presenting the programme who doesn't think religious is completely religion's completely absurd. I mean yeah. so who doesn't approach it from that from yeah, that yeah. from that angle. I hope nobody listening could ever tell that I'm a Catholic, I mean, I don't mind it. I was, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Like admitting it. Or but you don't approach everything from that angle. I don't yeah, want yeah. people to, you know, to, to write in afterwards or email in afterwards and say, you know, that interview you did about abortion, we could absolutely tell you were, yeah. you know, you were coming from your own perspective because, um, you know, we've you've lost that you've lost your you lost your job actually yeah, yeah. If, if that's yeah, the case. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but I but I do think it's not a bad thing to uh, have somebody presenting a program who at least appreciates. That that dimension to people's um, view of the world, yeah. Because otherwise, you're always exploring people's faith from a very negative and kind of reductive position. On digital radio, on the web, and via the Times Radio app. 
Matt Chorley on Times Radio. Oh, very good morning to you. It's good to have you with us. Matt Chorley on Times Radio. Uh, I've been talking about religion and politics with the broadcaster, Edward Sturton. And I want to now uh, bring in Chinny MacDonald, who's director of the think tank Theos, which researches the role of faith in society. Hi, Chinny. Good morning. Uh, it's good to have you here. Uh, also, we've got uh, Rabbi Charlie Baginski, who's the chief executive of liberal Judaism in the UK. Uh, good morning. Good morning. Uh, great to have you here. Now, I just want to uh, bring you a clip. Rishi Sunak's been visiting a Jewish school in London this morning, uh, saying he would do everything in his power to uh, keep uh, Jews in Britain safe. Let's just take a listen. I've come to this Jewish school this morning specifically to demonstrate my solidarity with the Jewish community here in the UK and let them know that we're going to do everything in our power to keep them safe. Uh, last week I met with the Community Security Trust and police chiefs. We provided more funding for the Community Security Trust. That's the organisation that helps keep schools, synagogues and other Jewish community institutions safe. Uh, we spent time with the police to make sure they have all the tools, powers and guidance they need. Uh Let's bring you in first of all, um, uh, Rabbi Baginski. Uh, do, do you feel, do Jewish communities feel supported by British politicians right now? Yes, I think um, we've seen very public declarations of um, support for the security for um, our community and um, some very uh, vocal um support and the loss that many in our community have experienced over the last week. And what about the British public more broadly? This debate, I don't know if you saw Hadley Freeman's column in the Sunday Times yesterday about, you know, she was contrasting the number of people who flew Ukrainian flags after Russia's invasion of Ukraine last year compared to the absence of Israeli flags now. Do you feel the support of the, of the, the British public? Such a hard question because I read... Uh, Hadley Friedman's article and felt a great deal of um, empathy um, and uh, sympathy uh, with with what she was saying. I think on an individual level, um, and I can speak personally, I've heard from um, a lot of, of friends, but there's also been a huge amount of silence. And um, I think we also know that it tends to be that where Israel is concerned, that there is there is a, a difference of behaviour or comment in terms of uh, the British public and in terms of uh, friends and work colleagues, um, and I think that's sadly some of that silence has been has been very present um, over the last week. Ed, Edward, I want to just bring you in on this. How 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 do you cover this story on your program, a program which is about faith? And like you were saying, faith is so central to at least the yeah. understanding of some of what is happening in Israel and Gaza. It's one of those occasions when um, our programme tips almost into a news programme because it's a moving, I was going to say a moving story, it's a moving tragedy actually, I think is a better way of put it, uh, putting it. Um, yesterday morning we had a couple of voices um, from Gaza, uh, obviously very difficult to get there but people are yeah. getting stuff out. Um, we had uh, the voice of, of an Israeli spokesman for the government explaining their, context, their um, perspective on what was happening. And then we had two, I thought, well, we, we did a little bit about the um, Palestinian Christians because they're a very small minority, but of course they are caught up in, in Gaza along with everyone else and a lot of them are staying in their churches as a kind of place of sanctuary rather than moving south. So we have a little 
perception of, of them. And, and and then we had two, I thought, quite weighty, and I found very interesting, I hope the listeners did too, items at the o- end of the programme. One, um, an expert on Hamas, uh, which we looked at, and it's almost sort of impossible to say this because of what they did, but we looked at it from the perspective of their religious convictions because they do regard themselves as a religious organisation. Um, and and we interviewed a Muslim on that, and he talked a little bit about how upsetting it was as a Muslim to find his religion used in that way. And we also talked to Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian, who'd written an incredibly thoughtful piece um, about the kind of the state of, of Israeli society and what this was likely to do to it. Um, so it was quite a broad yeah, yeah. range of things, and I hope, as we always do, that it was balanced and will have felt balanced. I was doing um, The World at One last week, at the end of last week, in other words, sort of proper um, news programmes, as it were, rather than a religious one. And I have to say, I was, I'm sure this is true of most news organisations, incredibly impressed with the kind of seriousness of purpose that most of my colleagues felt towards getting the story right. There was a kind of a, a, a very sort of um, very sad but also very focused feel about the way people were working. Well, I suppose it goes to the heart of what journalism is, isn't it? It's, it's, it's explaining and this is a complex story and it seeking is. to explain it and bring in every side and mm-hmm. as many voices as possible is, is, is at the heart of what we should be doing all the time. It is, but with the added dimension um, in the case of this story with a terrible tragedy mm. with with appalling atrocities with continuing loss of human life and with really acute sensitivities you know on every on every side um it's exhausting yeah. but you're right it yeah, is yeah, it is cool. in a way it's journalism um, you know it's at its best in the sense of what we should be doing. Chidi, I want to bring uh, you in as somebody who sort of looks at the role of faith in in British society. There will be lots of people listening to this programme or watching the TV news or listening even to uh, Edward's programmes who who don't have faith. We were talking about the rise of secularism in the UK and as a result really struggle with this story because faith is so central to it. So so people who... uh, uh, Jewish people and Muslims looking at this know exactly what what's going on, but lots of people aren't. So, what what do you make of the the way that British people can understand this story if they don't have faith? I think I would argue with the idea that we um, that secularism is on the rise. I think lack of religious affiliation is on the rise. But people and um, what religion and faith is ultimately about is about what it is to be human, about beliefs and ideas about the world, about who our neighbour is and how we live alongside each other well or not. And unfortunately, religion is at the heart um, of this very distressing, tragic story. Um, But it is complicated and it is complex. And there isn't a simple um, Muslims think this and Jews think that, and they approach things in different ways. Um, I think what is interesting here, though, is about, um, it's not necessarily about the religions themselves, but about what the religion represents and how the religion plays out. Um, so we've seen in recent years some big debates, for example, around um, Kate Forbes and her approach to uh, same-sex marriage. Um, we did some polling at Theos with YouGov, which which showed that actually people don't have a problem with the religion itself or with the religion of uh, political leaders, but they have uh, a problem 
when those religious beliefs are used to put forward certain ideas. Uh, in this case, these are some pretty violent ideas um, from Hamas who use um, uh, their religion as a way to uh, cause violence against people. But also there are some like really complex things going on underneath. And I think it's important that we try to understand um, the religious ideas that are at the root of this, but also understand the complexity and the diversity of it. Can I just add something yeah. to that? I mean, historically, it's worth going back to when Hamas came to power because it's quite a good illustration of of some of the failures of the British population as a whole, but the, our media as well, to understand things from a religious perspective. Their election after the Israelis withdraw in 2005, and they were initially elected, caught everyone completely by surprise. No one could have thought that that might happen. And that was partly because of this blind spot we have about religion, failing to understand, you know, what a big part it is in people's lives. And, and I think that's a good illustration of how our, our secular approach to news more generally and foreign policy, I suppose, in general too, actually takes us down blind alleys and means we miss really important things. That's really interesting. I just want to bring in another clip, actually. This was um, US Secretary of State Anthony Blinken when he visited Israel last week and specifically made a point of mentioning his own faith uh, while he was there. Let's just take a listen. I come before you not only as the United States Secretary of State, but also as a Jew. My grandfather, Maurice Blinken, fled pogroms in Russia. My stepfather, Samuel Pizar, survived concentration camps, Auschwitz, Dachau, Majdanek. So, Prime Minister, I understand on a personal level the harrowing echoes that Hamas's massacres carry for Israeli Jews, indeed, for Jews everywhere. Um, uh, Rabbi Charlie Baginski, do you think that he was, it was right for him to do that, for, for, for him to go not just as a US Secretary of State, but to, uh, to talk about his faith in a way that, you know, because at some point down the road, we might be looking to America to act as a sort of honest broker in, in trying to solve... Uh, solve this conflict in in, in the long term. Uh, what did you make of, of what he was saying there? I think what's interesting is in this concept of talking about faith, what he was talking about actually was um, identity and we're yeah. separating out mm. the sense of what does it mean to come from a place um, and the, how that interacts with your faith and actually often those two things, particularly um uh, with Judaism are, are the same thing. So uh, to be religious can mean lots of different things in terms of the context of being Jewish. And I come back to what your previous speaker said about um, the, the, the being religious can be about making the world more human. So one would hope that what Blinken is bringing would bring is um, that sense of being able to be both invested in this as being Jewish and is that being the history and understanding where why why this has been so traumatic for Israel and for Jews across the world but at the same time that that doesn't make him partisan politically that's not yeah, causing yeah. him to take one side and for me that's what that's what being Jewish does bring. Um, and admittedly, it's very difficult for any religious leader to say, I speak for all Jews or I speak for um, all Christians or everybody who's part of my, of my religion. Certainly not. But for me, Judaism is absolutely that sense of being able to understand what it means to be part of something, to be tribal, 
we are tribal, but also at the same time to understand what that means to be universal. And I hope that that is what he will bring um, to his leadership in this context. Just add something to that. It's not perhaps a specifically religious point, but a number of um, Jews and Israelis in, in Israel have said since these dreadful events unfolded that one of the things it did was took them back, back to the Holocaust, back to the pogroms that he was talking about. And you also hear Palestinians say that because they're being made to move, that takes them back to the Nakba, the, the war in 1948, and the fact that they were initially arrived, those families in Gaza as refugees from, from their villages during that war. So you get a terrible sense of history weighing very, yeah. very heavily on both sides, these sort of huge events coming back to life um, because of what's been happening. Uh, just finally, uh, Chini, I wanted to ask you about the, the role of, because the Archbishop of, of uh, Canterbury has talked about the need for all faiths to unite. Is that one way that, sort of within British society at least, we should be seeing faith leaders from, from different faiths alongside each other rather than sort of standing apart from a sort of policy perspective as your sort of think tank uh, hat on? Is that something that you, you think we should see? Yes, absolutely. I think that there's something about... Um, uh, Blinken's statement about being a Jew, which is about identity, but it's also about connection and religion being something that tr transcends culture or politics. So I think that absolutely religious leaders, at both at a local and national and global level, um, can come together to provide that moral leadership and point to some, something beyond themselves. There are really interesting um, and active interfaith movements um, locally in the UK. And I went to a, a meeting online on Friday where I realised that actually this is the time when um, solidarity across faiths and the interfaith movement is really important in showing that we are more um, united than we are, um, we're better united than we are uh, apart. So religions can play a role in providing that moral leadership yeah. and pointing to something beyond ourselves. Chinny's really good speech. Thank you for that. Chinny McDonald, director at the think tank Theos, which researches the role of faith in society. We also heard from Rabbi Charlie Beginsky, the chief executive of Liberal Judaism in the UK. It was certainly really good to see you. Thank you for coming in. Presenter of Radio Falls Sunday programme. His book, Sunday, uh, reflects on 50 years of the show. And that's all we've got time for on today's episode of the podcast. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And if you're a Time subscriber, don't forget to link your subscription, your Time subscription, to your Apple subscription, and you'll get bonus Redbox episodes. And there's loads of other content on there as well, including the new Times Radio Today podcast with uh, Stig Abel and Asma Mir and Chloe Tilly and Callum McDonald. So you can find that as well. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.